welcome back to another edition of the Who's God podcast. I am Thaddeus Funk, and uh, I am uh, kind of pursuing my vision of, of who is this God that uh, so many people seem to know and talk about. Uh, and I just want to get to know him more, and so I invite guests onto into the studio, onto my podcast, uh, to kind of learn more about that. Um, I, I am convinced that there's a real God, and he is interactive in the lives of people. And so it's through seeing how he does that that we can also get a better chance of who, a better perspective, better understanding of who he is. Um, so today in our podcast studio, uh, I have Jake Grease. Uh, Jake has a great story to share with us today. Uh, had a chance to have some coffee uh, here in the last week or so um, and learn a little bit of it. And I'm super excited um, to kind of hear a little bit more about it. So with that, Jake, tell us uh, just kind of overview. Who are you? Yeah, uh, well, I pre- appreciate having having me on the podcast and uh, looking forward to sharing some of my story. And hopefully, hopefully, uh, people are encouraged uh, just to see what God has done in my life. Uh, but yeah, so I I'm Jake Grease. I'm from Grand Island, Nebraska. Originally, uh, grew up in a Christian home, and uh, I have I'm one of four siblings. Number two, which is the best, if you didn't know that. <laughs> and, okay. Uh, second place is best. Second place is best, actually. Yeah, it's it's that rhyme that you have when you're uh, the kid. First is worst, second is best type of thing. So, Got it. Okay. So uh, yeah, second of second of four uh, Christian home, like I had said. It's it's a little interesting though because uh, my mom grew up Catholic, my dad grew up rather unchurched, but descended from uh, a really strong faith family. But uh, my grandparents had gotten divorced when he was around ten, and so he didn't really come to come to Christ until he was around thirty, hmm. uh, when him and my mom had been married for a couple years through a Promise Keepers event. Okay, uh, back in the nineties. So, hmm. so I grew up in a a Christian home, but a Christian home where my parents were both relatively new believers, uh, and so there wasn't. A lot of knowledge. They they took us to church on Sundays and and Wednesdays, and we did that really faithfully uh, my entire childhood. And we're involved in different things at our church in Grand Island, which is a was and still is a great church. And uh, and at the same time, uh, for me, I didn't really get the gospel. Right, I'd been shared the gospel. The gospel had been shared with me many many times. Uh, and in fact, when I was five. I started this cycle of hearing about the gospel and uh, especially the the hell part of the gospel and not wanting to go there. And then I would pray. So it was an avoidance thing. Right. It was so, fire insurance. Fire, <laughs> I love, fire insurance. We talked to, I talked, had a long conversation about fire insurance and being, you know, fireproof or mm. um, being a firefighter. But uh, I want to back up here a little bit. Mm. So first of four. So, all boys, second of four, girl boy, girl boy, girl boy. So the oldest boy, mm-hmm. I see. So two and two in the family. What what kind of things did your did your folks do? Was your mom stay at home? Did she work? What did your dad do? My dad uh, and my uncle owned a general contracting company in Grand Island, and my mom was mostly stay at home. Uh, and then when we got into school, would have different odd jobs. Uh, she's a serial job changer. Right now, most recently, she has been a substitute teaching for the public school system in Grand Island. Right. Has been doing that for a long time, actually. 
uh, maybe 10 years at this point. But when we were kids, uh, they, yeah, that my dad was doing contract. So he was really busy uh, being a business owner. Right. He would work uh, probably between 50 and 60 hours a week, depending on the season. Uh, so, but my mom was at home uh, with us kids. So, so you had, what was family life like? I mean, did you do a lot together as a family? We did, yeah. My parents always say that they had no hobbies, that their hobbies were hanging out with us as a family. And that's very true uh, for uh, most of the time. We, I'd say that a big piece of our family culture was going to a lake cabin at Sherman County Reservoir. Uh, it's like 45 minutes from our, our house in Grand Island. Mm-hmm. And we went there probably every weekend between Memorial Day and Labor Day uh, in the summers. We'd go up on Saturday morning and then stay over, uh, stay over the weekend, come back on Sunday afternoon. And so we spent a lot of time up there fishing, swimming, boating, jet skiing. And that was my mom's parents' cabin. And they've had it. It's been in their family for 40-plus years and so it was not just my family, but it was also my mom's siblings, my mom's parents, my cousins. And so that's like a massive piece of our family culture. So were there cousins up there as well that you'd meet? There there were there were cousins up there for sure. Not just your brother and sisters? Correct. Correct. So we spent a lot of time with our cousins as well, especially uh, one particular family, like the the my, my mom's brother who uh, ran the company together with my dad. His family was up there a lot as well, uh, so spent a lot of time with those three cousins of his, like his kids. Right. So yeah, that was that was a big part of our family, and then I would say also uh, just the church activities were a big big part of our family. Uh, we we went to Grand Island E Free and uh, E Free for a long time did the singing Christmas tree, which was a huge deal in Central Nebraska, and it was basically this three-story tall metal structure where people would stand in the tree and sing songs. Uh, and then there was drama in between the songs showing the, the story of Jesus. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, we do that uh, six times per weekend, uh, every weekend in December leading up to Christmas. Right. And it was really like an evangelistic outreach. Sure. But it also was the glue of our church for a long time. And so we did that every year. And, and you know, rehearsals would start in... October, and then we would kind of do that every Sunday afternoon. It was really, really fun. Right. And so I was, my siblings and I, several of us, I think three or four of our, my siblings and I were the infant baby, like baby Jesus in the drama. Right. Yeah. Which is really funny. I was like the fattest one because I was a June birthday. My sisters and my little brother were a little bit better because he was August and then they were November. So they were fresh babies when they were the, the baby Jesus. I was like, Six month old fat baby Jesus. So, so were you? <laughs> so were you known uh, for years in church as you were the baby Jesus? You know, was not that really. A not really, because there were so many people that were that over the forty years that we did it. Right. So, if you weren't baby Jesus, you're probably more known in our in our church. <laughs> oh, so sorry, you never got to be baby Jesus. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Well, I, I don't remember it anyway. So, oh, it's so funny. Huh. But that was that was such a cool thing to be a part of. There's so many good memories of of getting to be a part of, of that, that ministry that we were able to do. So it sounds like you were part of a, not only your own nucleus family, uh, mom being home, dad, I'm assuming, I mean, I, I, you know, when the sun's shining, dad was probably out working, but when the sun was down, 
or shortly thereafter. He was sounds like he was right back, doing a lot of stuff with his family. So the cousins, I'm guessing, were in town too. Did you do a lot of, you know, not lake time with the cousins too, or pretty much not? Which is an interesting thing. Our 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 extended family on my mom's side uh, was solely based on the lake, okay. and then a couple birthday parties here and there, and then you know Christmas. Christmas Eve was when we spent time with them. Right. But other than that, we weren't really spending a bunch of time together. And right. I think, I don't know exactly why that was the case, but I know that when we got older as, as kids, we got really involved in activities, uh, sure. sports and music. Uh, each of us were involved in both of those. And you know how it is, like people just get really, really busy and consumed with kids' activities. Yeah. I'm not there yet with my kids. I've got four <laughs> little ones, and my oldest is six, so we're we're very light on the activities right now. Sure, but that was definitely the the childhood for us was just running around to different activities. Right. Well, and and it's you know it's one thing if you have two people, just a married couple, keeping track of calendars. Yeah. Um, but every time you add another person, it's it's more complex and more complex, and and then pretty soon it, it's no wonder that you know moms joke about being a taxi service. Yeah. Um, and it is really hard. You know, because you're running kids from here, how do you how do you show up and that kind of stuff? So, what what did you know a little bit about um, about your parents' relationship? I knew that my parents were committed to each other and that they were not ever going to separate, and that they loved the Lord. And it looked different for both of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, my dad is a lot more expressive, and I would say probably has maybe a, a more intimate relationship with the Lord. Uh, but my mom is an avid Bible reader, uh, very, very connected to women's ministry in, uh, in our, you know, the Grand Island Free Church to this day. Uh, but, but yeah, I, I definitely, I definitely felt sure that they were going to stick together because, you know, my dad was a child of divorce and his life was severely impacted by, by his parents getting divorced. And he knew for sure that he didn't want to do that to his kids. And right. And uh, my mom came from a Catholic family uh, back in the day when uh, divorce was heavily stigmatized in the Catholic Church. Still, sure. So that was that was a core core thing in our family, and that was that really meant a lot to us as kids. And in terms of their uh, just interacting on a day to day basis, they made it a point to not have conflict in front of us. Really? Uh, which, looking back, I wish that they would have had some conflict in front of us because I grew up thinking that conflict was bad uh, mm. because I didn't see it modeled well uh, because they would, if they did have conflict, they would do it uh, in the, you know, private in private basically. Right. But yeah. they didn't have a lot of conflict. I think my, my dad is, has a strong personality like myself and my mom is okay with him being the strong personality and making a lot of the decisions. Okay. And I think my dad has learned over the years and I hope to learn this more and more, uh, that when my mom does speak up and share something that she's thinking or what's on her heart, that he should listen. Uh, right. And he, he does a good job of that. But I, I just, I've always known like they, they're friends. They mm-hmm. enjoy being around each other and they, they, it's not a burden for them to, to hang out and spend time together. They went on dates all the time and like they just pursued each other really well. So they modeled a lot of good things. Um, that's good, but obviously conflict. That's one of the things that we've all struggled with, um, and how to how to manage it well. But it's great to see it modeled. Uh, I want to back up here a little bit. You talked about you kind of hit like your dad seemed to have a uh, 
a good relationship with God. And then you moved over to your mom and you started listing, you know, she's an avid Bible reader involved in these different activities. Um, you know, the, I was reminded one time when you, when you're talking about a situation, talk about what would a camera see, you know, if you had a security camera or something, what would they, what would they see? You listed some of those things to your mom. Why do you say that about your dad? Say that again. Uh, what is it that you saw in your dad that made you recognize that he had a relationship with God as well? Well, if the camera had audio, that would be the thing that you would really see because he, like what he said, was uh, was big time in terms of just communicating his relationship with the Lord. And uh, it's easy to see visuals as well in his life. He's been a part of uh, Gideon's ministry at the the county jail in Hall County for the last decade or so uh, and has been involved in you know men's Bible study and similar things I guess in, in reading his Bible uh, I think he's just more expressive uh, and a more outgoing person so it's easier to kind of know what's going on inside uh, so he had all those things as well uh, but just definitely was more yeah. verbally expressive about his relationship with the Lord and just more of an evangelist in general Okay. Uh, and so it's just very easy to to see that intimacy that he has with the Lord. So very very outgoing with his faith, expressive. So since since our listeners can't see us, which is a good thing because I'm having a crazy hair day. Huh. Uh, what um, uh, what what would that sound like? What did that sound like? Yeah, I mean, what would your dad say? Just explicitly share the gospel. Often, you know, and. When we were really little, he would come in and, and do devotionals with us. And, uh, you know, I don't really remember that so much uh, because it was it stopped when we were in elementary school, probably. And so that that that's a memory that I have, but it's like foggy for sure. Yeah. The memories I have more that are more consistent are just since graduating college and getting involved in ministry myself, uh, just his verbal expression of like, hey, I'm so grateful that you're a part, like you're doing what you're doing basically mm. and grateful that God has called you into into the ministry that you're a part of. And and yeah, I mean, just, just even his prayers like for different things, whether it's at Christmas time, we do like a special uh, Saturday or Christmas morning interaction as a family when we when we're with them and his prayers uh are just really gospel centric and uh you can tell that the man knows that he's a sinner and he needed god to save him mm -hmm. uh, and my dad had a, a rough childhood uh after his parents got divorced my mom or my, my grandma worked a lot of jobs to keep food on the table for my dad and my uncle mm -hmm. and they didn't ever have any money you know, and that, that seemed like it was more common back in the day, but even in high school, my dad was known as the fighter, uh, mm. that people would, people would go around and, and uh, they'd, they'd, they'd want to fight him because they knew that he was going to, going to fight. Mm. Uh, and I think that was kind of his reputation and then getting married to my mom, uh, he was confirmed in the Catholic church, uh, basically just, to to marry my mom. Right. Uh, and and then when, you know, up until his life was changed because of promise keepers, I think he was just really rough around the edges. And so I, he just he just exudes like a, a gratitude and a, a really 
a deep understanding that he was a sinner need needing to be saved and that Christ is the one who's done that in his life. So, so did you did you see change in his life? I mean cuz how old were you? What what did you have been when I you was were, an infant when you came were in Christ. Okay. Yeah. So I didn't see that change, but I I have heard and I I've seen change over his life since then for sure in the last 20 years. Mm-hmm. Uh for sure, especially the last 10 I would say. But it was interesting. So my uncle, my dad's younger brother, passed away uh, when I was in high school. And some of my dad's friends from high school uh, came to the funeral. And it was it was crazy to hear the stories that they shared. And for them to explicitly say, hey, your dad is, like, totally different than he used to be. He used to be wild and crazy and kind of a bad, <laughs> bad dude in some ways. Right. And he's totally different now. Hmm. So that was that was really cool to hear, and then just personally, it's been really cool to see how he's been uh, engaged in ministry in the last ten years, in, in particular in the the uh, Gideon's jail ministry. But then also, Child Evangelism Fellowship has Good News Clubs, and he and my mom have started one of those in one of the elementary schools in Grand Island, and that's just cool to see because that's a great ministry and yeah. uh, it's a great opportunity. And I'm just grateful to see that they're using their semi-retired years to uh, have an impact and not just sit around and golf or watch TV. Though, right. you know, they do some of that so, too, but... So you, you've you seen in his life the evidence of God. For sure. For sure. How about your mom? What did that look like for her? Had you, did you see God working in her life? It's, it's, more, it's more difficult to see uh, God's work in her life. I wrestle with that, you know, because I obviously want my parents to to know the Lord. And if they don't, then that's a problem with me. And I'm going <laughs> to do what I can to, to continue to share the gospel and expose them to, to Christ. Uh, but yeah, my, my, my mom is just more, uh, she's not like, and she'll say this herself, uh, but she's not a super deep thinker. And so she's not going to exp- like exposit and share her thoughts about the gospel. Uh, she she's she does a lot of the, the Christian things, you know. Right. But she also grew up Catholic, so she definitely has that predisposition to to do the Christian things. Uh. But yeah, I I don't know. It's it's but it's not the same with everyone. Everyone doesn't express their their belief in God and their Christianity in the same way. And I I have grown in my understanding of that. And I think that before I just wrestled with her and her like the way that her faith was expressed because I was concerned. Um, but yeah, I would say definitely my, my dad is more spiritually mature, even, even all that being said, but, but yeah, I think the things that I see are my mom faithfully reading the Bible every day and mm-hmm. praying and being connected to like going to uh, several women's groups and Bible studies and being a part of the Good News Club, a ministry, she's on the right. missions committee at church, and yeah, so, so I definitely see so, the things. Yeah, so I, I, the picture that comes to mind is a little bit of uh, of kind of the duck out of the lake. You know, it looks like they're just gracefully moving across the lake, and yet if you had a camera underwater, you'd see their legs are just paddling, you know, to get out. And so, um, have you seen? Uh, your parents go through struggles, um, and you've, have you seen evidence of their faith there? Good question. 
I'm kind of one of the things I'm kind of wondering is, you know, sometimes that that faith is there and it's solid and strong that if you're not because it comes out differently, if you're not seeing it, um, you know, really on the surface that sometimes in times of struggle, you see her, you know, maybe she might be strong and just consistent. And yeah, that's a good question. I think I have seen some of that, but not a ton, to be honest. I think my mom has struggled with uh, mild depression for her whole life. Mm. And so there's uh, some struggle and some uh, some faith being shown in that. And that's a very internal struggle. Yeah. You don't – people on the outside don't see that. Yeah, and like like I said, I think that my parents uh, were of the, the, the thought that they should shield their kids from struggles that they were experiencing – Right. And things that they were going through, hence why they didn't ever have conflict in front of us kids. Right. And so, you know, everyone has issues and has difficulties and has things in their life. And so I know that my parents have them, obviously, because they're humans. Right. But I don't think that they have done much expressing uh, those things to us as kids. You know, as a, as a parent and having being at the point where my, my children are launched on their own um, and recognizing that. Um, you know, we spent a generation trying to shield our kids, you know, and I think the previous generation, the, re- the reason I think some of our parents were trying to shield that from us is because they saw it and experienced it firsthand. And so I think they were kind of, you know, I don't want my kids to go through what I went through. Yeah. Um, and as a parent, I totally understand that piece of it. But now I'm going, realizing that how unprepared I am to manage some of those things, realizing, yeah, I should probably let my kids see conflict mm-hmm. um, and let them see how I get through it. Mm-hmm. And, and honestly, and this is the harder part is let them see that I fail. Yeah. You know, as a dad, you want to be, you want to be that dad that your kid can idolize. You know, they idolize us right away, but at some point in time, you're like, Oh man, he idolizes me. I better live up to that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think at times then it's hard for dads to show that we are faulty and yeah. to admit to our kids Hey, I'm not, I'm not perfect. And yet, if we do that and do it well, which the first time we do anything, very few people ever do it well. Mm-hmm. Um, but if we can do it and do it well, then our kids start to recognize, hey, I don't have to be perfect at everything out of the gate. Um, but um, I've seen somebody struggle and get good at it. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I saw where they struggled. And I can start. And then they can potentially, our kids can can take off on our shoulders. Um, there, I just spent a whole lot of time talking about my story, and but I think it I think it relates to to kind of where you're at. So what? Let's go ju- jump back a little bit. You're a kid. You're running around. Was life pretty carefree as a kid, or or was For it? Sure. It sounds like a lot of lake, a lot of lake time. Yeah. No, our our life was very carefree, and, and I I resonate with a lot of what you just said. And because of the resonation, like it was very carefree. My parents shielded us from. Difficulties, and to be honest, like we had a pretty good, pretty good life. Uh, my parents did well; like they were very frugal and intelligent financially. And so, uh, as we got older, uh, money was less of an issue, mm-hmm. uh, and that's definitely people's first stressor. I think is is just are we going to be able to provide for our family? And so, when that's not a question, uh, I think some things can get a lot easier. For sure. But then also, my parents had a lot of good Christian friends that we were able to spend time with. 
as well. They had a probably monthly card club where they would invite a bunch of people from their friend group at church over and play pitch, and then all of us kids would run around outside, which was really fun. Yeah. So lots of memories like that, and uh, and then, uh, yeah, just getting to be involved in sports from a young age, uh, all of them, <laughs> tried, tried out all of them, and then continued along with wrestling and football and baseball, and then I did track in, in high school and college. That was really fun to be involved in those things. And I think my dad... Being that he came from the family that he did where, you know, no one was looking at him and saying like, oh, like he's he's from this family. We have these high expectations for him. In fact, they were really like probably the opposite of that, like because divorce in that era was very stigmatized. Mm -hmm. And so families that had divorced parents, the kids were looked down upon, it seems like. Yeah. Especially in small town. You know, my dad grew up in like the Henderson Aurora area. And so I think my dad grew up feeling like he had something to prove. Right. Uh, which he did, you know, he did. And he and my mom both went to college but didn't finish. And because of that, I think my dad has always been a learner and uh, a person who has said, I might not be the smartest person in the room. My dad is like, you know, he's a smart guy, I think. But he's way harder worker than everyone else. Right. And so he... He and my mom both instilled that in us, that we might not be the smartest people in the room, but we're going to work the hardest. And uh, I think that goes a long way uh, in life. And we learned that playing sports and doing music Mm. and theater and stuff like that. Quiz bowl. (laughs) So, uh, but yeah, very much a carefree childhood and idyllic in a lot of ways. We grew up on a one thing that was a bummer about my childhood is we grew up in a neighborhood in Grand Island that there was no other kids my age. Mm. So my younger sister and I spent a lot of time together hanging out, uh, running around. I had friends over a lot and would go over to friends' houses, especially starting in uh, late elementary, early middle school, and then through high school, I was with friends all the time. Sure, sure. Uh, so that seems a pretty common theme once once we get into high school you know you're either involved in a lot of sports or a lot of other activities or um or you've got a a group of friends sometimes it's even one Mm -hmm. that uh you know it it seems like you're starting to spread your wings starting to figure out you know hey i'm autonomous um and oftentimes we as humans like to do that with someone else Mm -hmm. uh and so yeah and get out of the house as much as possible as a parent my kids got in high school as soon as he had keys, I, like gone. I never see him. Yeah, I was the same way. Yeah, and and he was never he was never again was he on the same meal schedule. Mm-hmm. So he was never <laughs> home for lunch or you know dinner or for him supper might be ten thirty at night. You know, oh wow. You know, we might cross paths in the kitchen as I'm uh, as I'm getting ready for my you know midnight snack kind of mm. thing, and he's you know. But other than that, you know that was it. So so what uh, when did you start to really find was there ever a time when you found you had to work hard was there something you struggled at good question uh things things came pretty easily for me uh for most of my childhood uh especially academics i went to a a smaller country school and uh just you know i i kind of chalk it up to i was older in my class i wasn't like weirdly old for my class but 
I was one of the older kids in my class. And I mm-hmm. think even, even six months of age difference in elementary school makes a big difference. Yeah. And so, uh, in elementary school, I was bored all the time and they actually in third grade just started sending me to a different room and, you know, I'd be done with, I'd be done with my work and I'd be sitting there twiddling my thumbs and they said, you know, just go to a different room and read. And we had the, yeah, that, that was absolutely me. Cause they, they didn't know what, what else to do. Yeah. I mean, I'm a little bit ahead of you in age, but there weren't computers weren't a thing till later. Mm-hmm. And so what do you do? Go read. Exactly. And I'm ex- extremely competitive. Uh, and they had an accelerated reader program. And so I, I set the record for accelerated reader points, uh, at my elementary school. And then it was broken by a friend of mine soon after that. Soon so, so was that, okay. I, I just, and maybe, maybe go down memory lane. Was that the one where you had like a box? And you go and pull cards. No, no, what was that like? It was it was a a program where you would read a book and then you'd have to take a a comprehensive like pro- comprehension quiz on it. Hmm. And then if you pass the quiz, you'd get points. And yep. the points were based on how long the books were, basically, and like the level that they were at. So I just voraciously read for th- uh, third, fourth, and fifth grade, right, all, all the time. And I read at home as well. It wasn't just at school. And so that's where I I, I developed a love for learning uh, reading, which you know helped me even more uh, as the schooling went on. And so in some ways I wish that there were more opportunities for me uh, at the schools that I went to in terms of like high ability learning programs. Sure. And there were some more of that uh, in my middle school and high school career, but still not as much as I would have liked. Uh, but, but yeah, I think, I think there was some challenge in middle school in sports in particular. So like I had said earlier, I, I, I've wrestled. Wrestling is like we're we're a wrestling family, and for those who uh, are wrestling families, you know, you know, you know what that's like and what that means. But I was again really good for my child, like my elementary school years, and then in middle school people started to hit puberty, and I did not hit puberty mm. until high school, and so they're busting out with muscles and. And you're still not. And I'm this like chubby fat kid in seventh grade who has been beating these kids for, I mean, I I started wrestling when I was four. And so I've been beating these same guys for eight years. And then all of a sudden they start beating me and I'm like, this sucks. (laughs) I don't like this. And wrestling is a difficult sport to get beat at because it's you, you're out there, you're alone. There's no one to blame and it's embarrassing to lose. And my dad wasn't the best at, uh, like helping me to get through those. Like he, cause again, he's from Aurora and Aurora is a very avid sports community and they're really good. Mm-hmm. And so, and I think he vicariously lived through me in some of my sporting things as well. Uh, so it wasn't like a, Hey, you know, you just lost. Here's some things that you can work on. You did this well, here's some things you can work on. Let's go get the next one. Let's, you know, let's train harder type of thing. It, was, it wasn't that you're saying it wasn't that. And I don't even know what it was, but it wasn't that, uh, it was like a disappointing, like, you know, you should have won that or stuff like that. So when I started losing, that was difficult. And I didn't really have anyone saying, saying that, you know, Hey, you're, you know, you can work harder and give it some time. Cause that's what I need. My, my dad did say though, he said when I, when I was uh, in eighth, seventh or eighth grade, he said, you know, all these guys, you and all these guys that are, are, uh, 
you know, you're wrestling each other right now and some, you know, these guys are beating you a couple of them and you beat them before, like you guys are all going to be like cream of the crop, top of the state, uh, when you're in high school and you're going to win state championships. And he was totally right with that. Uh, I'm thinking of several guys that I, that I lost to in that time period that are multiple time state champions. I was a state runner up my, my senior year. Uh, mm. and so he was really, he was really right about that, but that's hard to hear. And you don't believe that when you're a middle schooler and you're getting beat by a kid that you, uh, have been beating for years. So that was tough, tough on your ego. Yeah. So at sure. this point in time, where were you with God? At that point in time, uh, I had done the whole cycle of praying to receive Christ, uh, for the fire insurance. And I was going to church on Sundays and Wednesdays, you know, believing that I was a Christian basically. Mm-hmm. And I, also around that time I, I got baptized at my church and I don't remember the, but the impetus for that. Uh, but it was around the age of 13 that I, I expressed a desire to get baptized and, and did that. And I knew all the answers. I knew all the right things, but looking back my, as, a, as a reader, you could, you could read the books and know the, what the answers were. You could study the test. You knew how to, how to pass the test. Yeah. Yeah. But the, the gospel that I was living was a gospel of self-righteousness and thinking that, you know, what it looked like to be a Christian was to not, not drink, not sleep around, not smoke, and to be the best at everything, which is so – it's so, like, crazy and sad looking back. Mm-hmm. But that's definitely uh, a pretty common thought, I would think, in, uh, at least in the, the circles that I ran around with when I was a kid. Well, sure, because a lot of people want to take and they want to point a finger at the successful Christian and say, see, if you're a good Christian, this is this is what your life's going to look like. Um, and really, the two aren't necessarily connected at all. Yeah, and I would say that around that time is where I started to live like a double life, like mask-wise. Like I was building up this persona that I knew that is what I wanted to be and what everyone else expected me to be. Uh, and internally it wasn't, it wasn't true. And I also didn't really connect well with the people at my church's youth group. And I don't know why, maybe because people just assumed that I was, I was good. Like I was a, a Christian kid. Cause my, you know, my parents and my family, we went to church and so they just maybe assumed more than, and there was no one that ever, well, th- not th- there wasn't no one. There were people in my middle school and high school years that, that uh, definitely cared about me. Uh, some people you might know, actually. Hmm. But uh, but there was still... I was just... I was hiding, and I don't really know why. I've thought about it quite a bit, actually. And uh, the hiding and the, the mask making and wearing definitely worked for a while and then did not... It was not manageable and uh, didn't work out hmm. later on in life. So is that... You know, I wonder how much of that was just learning. These are the things that Christians do. So I'm doing these things. That must mean I'm a good Christian. But there was a disconnect. Yeah. Well, there, there was, was like dis- disconnect between my head and my heart, my actions and what was like the interior, you know, what was going on in my heart, basically. So, so yes, I'm doing all the things on the outside. I look like a Christian, but on the inside, I'm not really connecting with God. Yeah. Is that kind of what it was? Yeah, exactly. And, and like I was, I was, yeah, I was doing things because that's what I that's exactly what you said. And, but there's no, there's no relationship with God. I wasn't doing them because of what God had done for me. I was doing them because that's what I thought I was supposed to do. You were performing exactly for yourself, 
for your family, yeah. for the, the circle that that you found yourself in. I mean, at that point in time, we, we start to pick our friends kind of, but the truth is, you know, you're going to the weekends where your parents are saying you're going to the lake. You know, mm-hmm. you're going to the church because that's where parents go. Mm-hmm. You go to the school you're going to because, you know, those circumstances. You know, a lot of that, and even if you had a job, you know, you, you're, you typically as a kid, we get a job that's either convenient that we can go to, you know, because it's close, or mm-hmm. it works within our schedule, or they'll work with us around wrestling practice or all that other kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So it's very limited in your options. Um, more the world is directing you mm-hmm. than you really are, you know, self-directing. Yeah. I was really good at performing. Yeah. Really, really good. I yeah. was a good athlete, got straight A's. And went to you know I even led I even led an FCA Bible study in high school as a like a a dead person you know dead heart stone heart leading an FCA Bible study and looking back it's it's just just funny funny to to think about that and so, also sad <laughs> so yeah so let's look into let's dig into that a little bit so I'm imagining you know oftentimes we we say our our, our closest connection to God is prayer and and praying and talking to Him. Um, I'm assuming because a lot of Christians go like, "Well, you got to pray." Well, okay, here's the Our Father, or here's the I come from the the German heritage. You know, every time we sit down, come Lord Jesus, be our guest. Blah blah blah. Hmm. Uh, please, Germans, don't get upset with me, especially <laughs> the German Lutherans. I love you. Um, <laughs> but that was it. It, it was ritualistic, mm-hmm. and it was just you know, it's like tying my shoes. I don't think about it. Yeah, there's not a connection to it. Um, I'm assuming you were still praying at that time. I was I was praying before meals. Uh, you know, one one vivid memory that I have of my middle school years in prayer was there was a guy uh, from our church when I was probably a, a sixth grader who he was in his early twenties, maybe late teens. I don't remember exactly. His name was John, and he had cancer, and that was devastating to this this church, this community. And I remember praying every night that God would save, save John would heal him from this cancer. And, uh, John ended up dying, uh, soon after that. And yeah, no one, no one, no one talked to me about that. Uh, and this wasn't a family friend of ours. It was just someone at the church. Right. But still no one, no one like helped me to process that and talk me through that. And I think that, that really was not, not great for my my faith, and I, I don't think that I would have said this at the time, but it was really like really detrimental. So, uh, and I and I, I've come across a lot of people at this at this point who there's a stage in their life where someone gets sick, mm-hmm. terminally sick, and they seem to have this this idea that if they pray hard enough or they you know do whatever it takes to please God, if they make God happy enough, that then God will heal that person. Mm-hmm. And then when that person dies, there's blame towards God or there's anger at – or there's even – at that point then sometimes opens the door for self-shame. I wasn't good enough. I didn't mm-hmm. pray hard enough. Mm-hmm. You know, it was my fault that that person died. Did you encounter any of that? Yeah, that's a good question. I'm sure. Uh, as I think back, I think – Man, it was it was a long time ago. It was a long time right. ago. I don't know that I can like pinpoint which of those specific feelings that I felt, but I'm sure that I felt some of them. Did it cause you to question God? 
I think it was more questioning me. You know how you shared that sometimes people will, when they have an experience like that, say, oh, well, I must not have prayed hard enough. It must be a me faith problem. Uh, and so I don't, I don't think that I ever, I've never struggled with like questioning God's goodness mm-hmm. more so, uh, me. Right. What did I do that he didn't answer my prayer? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or like, I don't, I don't need God. Cause I think that, that, I think that that's the way I was living my life, uh, unbeknownst to me when I was in high school. And then even the, as I was getting into college as well. Yeah. Well, if you've, if you've got a good brain, which it sounds like you did, and you've got a good body, which it sounds like you did, at, at some point, you know, if you, if you, if you learn how to work hard, um, we can, we can manage a lot of our own life and seem pretty successful. Mm-hmm. Um, and it sounds like you were doing that, mm-hmm. but you've mentioned a little bit that you were still kind of dead inside. For sure. What is, talk, talk to us a little bit about that deadness. I think the deadness was, it kind of came out in several different ways for me. The first of which was I just tried to achieve, achieve, achieve. I was a part of our music department in high school in multiple choirs, three sport athlete, uh, all throughout co- or high school. I was a straight A student. I was in quiz bowl. I was in mock trial. I was in national honor society. It's like, I just had this insatiable desire to like be self-righteous and like you, put on the trophies. Basically you were the all American kid. Yeah. And I was and good a, looking. <laughs> yeah, my <laughs> wife thinks so at least. That's all that matters to me anymore. Right. But I was I was at a high school also where I was able to do all that kind of stuff, you know. We were class B, graduating class of 200. So I could do all those things and people worked together. There wasn't people saying like, "Oh, you need to quit this thing because it's interfering with you doing this thing." And I wouldn't have listened anyway. Uh, right. but So I w- I just got to pause there cuz yeah. I just totally reacted. I was class A where I grew up. And my class was 186, hmm. smaller than your class, and your class B. That's that's the difference, I guess, growing up in South Dakota versus mm, interesting. in Nebraska. So that was the biggest class in South Dakota. Class like, A, yeah, yeah, yeah. We were class A. And my class was 186. Now there were bigger high schools, um, sure, and and maybe just being the capital city, maybe they just you know you guys are class A no matter what. But mm-hmm. um, but yeah, so that that just kind of threw me a little bit. I didn't, I guess, I didn't have that recollection that. My class A would be your class B, but I, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I, I wonder where the cutoff is uh, for for those classes in Nebraska anymore because schools are getting bigger. Yeah, so I, I, I imagine. Well, Hastings was kind of between A and B, and I think they were more like two fifty, three hundred. So right. So you were in this school. You were able to do everything. Um, you succeeding at it, really looking great from the outside. Mm-hmm. What well, what was going on on the inside? Just. Uh, continued lack of like, is this like, is this it, you know? And I started to, and the other thing that I was going to share is, uh, in middle school, I I was exposed to pornography for the first, for the first time. And that became like a part of this mask, double life, seeking, seeking connection, uh, through that. And that was, uh, a big piece of the hiding as well, uh, in high school for me. And so I think trying I was to, trying to fulfill something inside this connection, still not being made. Connection was what it was. And, and, and I've, I've, I'm very certain about now having worked through a lot of, uh, of that at this point in my life. Uh, but it was definitely seeking for deep connection 
and I just didn't have it at all. And 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 you know, I was popular, like I had lots of friends, but that didn't do it for me either. Uh, and I don't know. It's 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 a uh, a curious thing to think back on, uh, like what was going on in my brain. I just don't know if I thought a lot. I just thought like this was what I'm I supposed I'm supposed to do, mm-hmm. and so I'm gonna do it. And I also did enjoy those things. I didn't do them just because I felt like I had to. But I, I enjoyed that. And I think I also did a lot of stuff and I've always kept busy. Uh, less Well, I have four kids, so I'm busy now too. But I think for a long time I was busy so that I didn't have to think. Yeah. Like I wasn't alone with my thoughts. You know, um, I was in a meeting yesterday where I did a personality profile. And, and it uh, it showed that I had high extroversion, which everybody around me thinks, that is you're this amazing extroversion. And, and really the person I was talking with, they're like, I actually thought this would be higher than it mm. was. Um, and we kind of stopped back and, you know, stepped back and said, okay, growing up, I was alone at home. My mom was single mom. She was always out working. And when she was home, she was exhausted. Mm-hmm. There was no, like, she wasn't able to connect. So even yeah. then I was alone. So even as an introvert, I still had to go out and, uh, and find ways to make society work for me. Mm. Um, but as an introvert, I had to learn a lot. And the word I used was cope. And I think a lot of that as insight was that brokenness that I had becoming a really good at, at being an extrovert. You know, the same kind of things you did minus the I didn't do sports, but I also worked. Graduated honors, spoke at my graduation, National Honor Society, you know, debate. I rubied in a single year. Um, those types of things. I think I just got really good at being busy. Mm-hmm. So that I didn't have to think about it. Mm-hmm. So that I didn't have to realize that my heart was broken mm-hmm. or that I was coming from a bro- – I mean, I knew I was broken. Small town, single mom, divorce. I was all of that that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. And so I think in hindsight, as I'm starting to unpack this myself, this is always a journey, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the destination is, is you know, years off, hopefully, for both of us. Um, but that that journey is realizing that maybe all that stuff I was really good at was just me coping for sure. For the brokenness inside. Is that, you say for sure, you're relating to that? Yeah. And I also uh, want to say I also related to, even though my parents were around more than maybe your mom was, they weren't emotionally connecting with me. Uh, and I think I was, I think I felt alone in that way, even though I had siblings that, especially my younger sister and I were very close growing up, but I didn't have the... I didn't have the connection for my parents that I think that I that they wanted to give me, but just didn't know how to. Right. And also that like I needed as a kid. Hmm. Just the like, hey Jake, I love you regardless of the things that you achieve and the things that you do. Uh, my parents say that all the time now because they've they've learned how important that is, but it just wasn't there. Uh, and I I don't think that uh, people in their generation really understood the importance of emotional connection mm-hmm. because they were just happy to not get beat up by their parents and not right. get screamed at by their parents. And, uh, I think that that's a, a step forward that my generation can take in parenting is, is realizing, you know, there was physical and verbal abuse and, you know, post-World War one. And then our parents were like, well, we're not going to beat up our kids and we're not going to emotionally and verbally abuse them. And that's a step forward. And now uh, not just the absence of abuse, but the the adding in the emotional piece of, of parenting and 
teaching or teaching my kids about emotions and and just conflict resolution and things like that in general I think are the way that hopefully our generation can take a step right. forward it, it makes me wonder you know in our brain we can only we can only hold so much and so if our parents were were reacting to this maybe that was all they could do you know um, and so so they're working in a couple different areas you know we're focusing a lot on emotion and and interconnectedness it makes me wonder you know 20 30 40 50 years from now are our kids going to look back at us and go hey you guys really didn't have any any perspective on this you guys gave no thought to this no attention to this um and they're going to have their own area to focus on and and i'm curious what that might be yeah well the this is not the point of the podcast but perhaps there'll be another another significant conflagration in the world where you know we'll just reset and then people that have been like have been a part of a war they come back and they have the same issues that our great you know our grandparents had yeah i hope that that's not the case but that seems to be the historical trend and cycle in the world if you look back you know yeah that so. this we get to the the top of maslow's pyramid self actualization and and then the truth is a lot of times as societies we get to that point we get fat we get lazy you know and you watch you know, even as I've studied the wealth accumulation, you know, the first generation makes it. The second generation does a pretty good job of, of managing it. The third generation knows nothing about the work involved. Mm-hmm. And so they just live off the blessing. And by the fourth generation, they're poor again. Yeah. And it is very much that. So so you're kind of still struggling with this deadness inside. Um, you're looking really good on the outside. You leave the small town of Grand Island. You come to the University of Nebraska here in Lincoln and doing a little bit of sports, right? Is that helping pay for school? Is that part of it? Uh, no, I just walked on the track team. I had a, a region scholarship for academics, so I just had to pay for room and board. Right. But, yeah, I got to, got to Nebraska and just was really living high. You know, like I was doing good in school, was on the track team, which felt really cool. It was it was really cool uh, being a Division One athlete. Uh, looking back, I wish I would have done a different sport, but, uh, you know, got, got to, got to Lincoln and didn't know, I didn't have a plan spiritually. Mm-hmm. I had, pl- I guess I had, I had, other than finding a church and going to church, that was, that was my plan. I had no plans. I had no knowledge of campus ministry and all the different opportunities that there are in college to grow in your faith. Uh, but I, uh, so I went to, this student activities fair called the Big Red Welcome, where they yep. have all of the different opportunities uh, available out in the horseshoe, right in front of the stadium. And I was approached by someone and said, "You know, there's we're offering free CC's pizza buffets if you fill out this contact card, basically a little survey." And I was like, "CC's pizza buffet? Heck yeah!" Right. And so I filled that baby out, and. Uh, you know, didn't think a thing about it, and uh, it just so happened that I had checked yes to uh, being interested in uh, learning about a Bible study, and ended up uh, going to eat in the CC's Pizza Buffet. And then that following week, uh, a guy, a, C- a junior uh, named Nick, knocked on my door and said, "Hey, I'm having a Bible study in 20 minutes downstairs uh, in your dorm in Smith. Uh, would you like to come? You know, you had filled out this card." And I was like, "Ooh." <laughs> I in my heart I was like no 
So in my mouth, I said, next time. I'm not a good. I'm not good at saying no. I'm still really wrestling with that as a as a 31 year old today. But I said I said next time, and uh, so next week, same thing happened. He came, invited me, and I said no again. So I said next time, uh, and that happened three more times. So for a total of five times, he came and invited me to his Bible study. And the fifth time, I just felt really bad because this guy kept in, inviting me, and I also didn't have any good excuse. Uh, to not go at that point in time. So I went down to uh, the first floor Smith and joined this Bible study. And really, probably within the first 45 minutes of the Bible study, I thought to myself, we're all calling ourselves Christians, and I'm very different from everyone in this group. How how so? What, what do you mean you're very different? These people were the first peers in my life that I witnessed that were serious about their faith and wanted to grow, wanted to be sanctified. We're spending time in the word on a daily basis, praying, and we're interested in sharing the gospel with other people. I had never experienced uh, a peer like that. And, and to be honest, very few adults like that in my life. And that began uh, a significant uh, dissonance in my heart, just like a, and this doesn't seem right, you know, because we're like, I'm, I'm calling myself a Christian. They're calling themselves Christians, but I'm very different. You're not one of them. Correct. And that was a very strong feeling that I felt. So maybe I'm not a Christian. I don't know that I felt that uh, at that specific point, uh, but the dissonance began to grow. Okay. And it began to grow as I continued to go to that Bible study because I liked it. You know, it was cool. We were talking about uh, things that I was interested in. And it, it just so happened that other people were struggling with the same things I was struggling with, in particular porn, and uh, were actually talking about that, which was, like, bizarre to me. Nobody talks about that. Nobody talked about it when I was uh, when I was in high school. In fact, well, except for the people that were talking about it and trying to normalize it. Right. Which was happening uh, a long time, you know, in 20, 2009, which I'm sure it's even more so uh, a conversation with lots of people in high schools today. But that was very different for me, and I was uh, relieved in some ways and also kind of felt awkward that we were talking about it. Uh, and so I began going to that Bible study regularly, and then I also started going to the the weekly meeting for this campus ministry, this crew. And, uh, yeah, I just began to hear the gospel, uh, and that wasn't new for me. I'd heard the gospel a lot growing up, but the thing that was different that – was that it was my peers and it was the people that were, they weren't just going through the motions. They were really attempting to grow in their faith and seem to have an intimate relationship with God. Hmm. So God starts to, to appear real. Yeah. And was this the first time that you were really starting to see this? I think so. I think so. And you know, I think the, the thing that was helpful for me in that time period was not only was I starting to, grow in understanding God's holiness and his goodness, I was also starting to understand and see more blatantly my sinfulness. Mm. And for me, that looked like, uh, you know, continuing on with the, the sexual, the sexual addiction, uh, and then also getting into partying, uh, with my teammates. And so, you know, I was out on Friday, Saturday nights, getting drunk and, uh, trying to seek, some consolation in my heart in that way. And then I would go to church on Sunday mornings and fall asleep in the back row. Uh, and it just really started to be really difficult for me to feel okay because I was living 
two two different lives basically. Mm-hmm. And I was one way with my teammates and one way with another way with the people that I was interacting with the Bible study. Hmm. And uh, that started to get more and more uncomfortable throughout my freshman year. And it came to a head uh, the Wednesday before spring break my freshman year. A, a guy stood up at our weekly meeting and said, hey, I'm hoping to go down to Panama City Beach next week. Well, actually, on you know on Saturday. Right. Uh, in three days. And... Uh, go to the crew spring bake conference where, you know, they, they teach you how to share the gospel with a tract and then they send you out to share the gospel with all the partying kids on the beach. And he said, I really want to go. I've registered, but I can't afford the gas all by myself to get down there. Would anyone be interested in going? And my friend, my friend Drew and I looked at each other and we said, oh, we can, we can go. We have no plans for spring break in three days. So we uh, we raised our hands and we we ended up going down to that conference with uh, with Alan was this guy's name, and uh, while down there uh, I got trained on how to share the gospel with uh, the Four Spiritual Laws booklet, and then was sent out on the beach. And I just remember thinking to myself as I looked at all the people that were partying on the beach, I should be with them. I'm a faker. I'm a liar. You know, like I've been, I've been living this this partying lifestyle uh, the first three quarters of my freshman year, and why am I pretend? You know, I'm like looking at this tract, looking at the gospel, and I'm like, I'm, you know, this isn't me. Like I've been, I've been partying, and I think that that's where if you were going to sell anything, it was going to be the party life on the beach, not this relationship with God, because because right. we we like to sell what we know. Yeah, we like to sell. You know, if it's. Uh, I hear a lot of people say, well, if I'm going to sell a product, it's going to be something that I believe in. Mm-hmm. Well, here you are right at that point. What, do, what is it I am going to sell and what do I really believe in? Yeah. That sounds like a crossroad. It was a crossroad. And I believe that that's where I really realized, like, man, I am such a wicked sinner and I need I need someone to save me. And I can't save myself. And my life is unmanageable uh, with me at the helm. And I, I believe that that's where I, I became a believer. And it was really providential and beautiful in a lot of ways, not only because God saved me. Obviously, that's amazing. But it was also amazing because the next day I was out sharing the gospel with drunk kids on the beach and saw people come to Christ, mm. uh, which is a, a beautiful, beautiful thing for a new believer and believer of, of any age and any experience. But what a way to submit that change in your life, not only like, okay, God, I'm going to, I'm going to give it to you. Mm-hmm. I realize my wretchedness. I realize, and it's been a while since I've gone through the four spiritual laws, but <laughs> you know, I, I realize my need for you mm-hmm. and I'm surrendering to you. And I realize that part of your desire for me, you have that same desire for these others. Mm-hmm. Now you go out, the fire is starting to be stoked in you and it's already spreading to others, Yeah, which just, I'm sure in turn just sows more fuel on your fire. Very much so. Very much so. And so I would say from that point, uh, you know, I I think that that's when I became a Christian. For me, though, uh, my life changed slowly, which was discouraging at times, you know, because people have these stories sometimes where they come to Christ and then all their sin is like, you know, all their blatant outward sins are gone. And it's easy for them to get rid of alcoholism and pornography and all those things. And that was not my 
my story at all. Everything wasn't perfect all of a sudden. Yeah, no kidding. Isn't that isn't that crazy? So, but anyway, uh, s- shortly after that, uh, I realized. So that that guy that I went with, Alan, started discipling me, which was uh, a really uh, great relationship, and we're good friends to this day. Uh, and so that, that's been, that was really helpful and also uncomfortable because he was starting to poke me and get into the areas that I was hiding in. And, uh, wait, wait, wait a minute. I want to, I want to pause on what you just said. Cause I, I think the listener, we could, we could have just glazed right over this. He started discipling you mm-hmm. and, and I kind of go back now. I'm, now I'm going back. There's a guy who comes to your door five times. Mm-hmm. Like he didn't quit. Just because you'd said no, some version of not today, <laughs> he he could have he could have given up, yeah, but he didn't. And and I just think there's a lot of encouragement for people who have that person that they feel like they should reach out to. That after once or twice, they're like, "Well, they said no, I'm done." Mm. No, keep keep going, be persistent. You don't know, and and just to think about where would you be today if he hadn't kept mm-hmm. coming? And somebody was intentional in your life that got you in the door. Then now you talk about a guy who intentionally is starting to pour into you. You use the word disciple. Mm-hmm. But basically he's like, hey, I'm going to help you. I'm going to step into your life where you're at, and I'm going to show you what you do next. Mm-hmm. I'm going to start to model for you. And help you learn how to put these skills in place. Is that that's what it was? Yeah, exactly. And then not only that, but he's like, now I'm going to dig deeper and really start to where you're broken. I'm going to start to, sh- to we're going to turn the light on and we're going to get in there and we're really going to start to find some healing for you. Yeah. I can't imagine that just the gratitude that you must feel today for these individuals. Yeah, a lot. And thankfully for me, I, I still keep in contact with both of those guys and get to express that quite frequently. Uh, but yeah, there's been numerous people, countless really, that have poured into me over my life. And I have other stories in my life and then in people's lives that I've been a part of where what you said is super true, where there's not immediate gratification and immediate fruit when we're stepping out in faith mm-hmm. and whether it's sharing the gospel with people or pouring into them and their life doesn't immediately change or they reject the gospel. And then years later, uh, you hear that they're different or their life has totally changed or they came to Christ. I actually just had a really neat story of, of something like that, that maybe I can share in a few minutes when it makes more sense in the story. Sure. Well, so what I, what I'm starting to get a picture of, is and the who is God is it seems like God was always pursuing you Absolutely. and he used different people along the way he wanted that relationship with you but he's patient mm-hmm. is what I'm seeing patience because he knows at different you're, you're not going to be ready at different times but it sounds like he did things along the way to keep you one headed in the direction where he wanted you to go to kind of tweak your heart so that at the right moment in Panama City Beach, Florida, you'd have a full understanding of being able to look at yourself metaphorically in the mirror, but right there. Mm-hmm. That's me, not here. This needs 
we, we need to change this. And, and you'd already, you'd already been building up the dissonance, the internal mm-hmm. cognitive dissonance, the, it's not feeling right. And now all of a sudden you're smack dab face first, looking at yourself nose to nose at yourself in the mirror and realizing, okay, we're going to do this. Yeah. And then he does it. And then he re, re- he encourages you in that what just happened to you, you now uh, get to do this for others. And that heart is, and I'm going to jump ahead a little bit in the story, that same heart of sharing for others what this relationship that God is with you, uh, you now have, because you value it the way you do, you can't not share it. Mm-hmm. Am I right? Right. I mean, the rest of your story, it's like, okay, this is my life is all about sharing God and what he's done for me and how he can do that for you. Majority. <laughs> There's still some me in there that's not always about the <clears throat> the sharing the gospel with other people, but but yeah, for, for the most part. Hmm. So he's starting discipling you. I know I took us off on this track. No, you're good. Uh, uh, give us a, a little bit more, kind of what happens. Well, the big pieces of my life from that from that point uh, were just continuing to be a part of, of, of crew at UNL and uh, continuing to be a part of a Bible study, continuing to meet with, with Alan and get, get mentored and discipled. And, uh, and then like a, the, the next huge piece was when I was asked that, that same spring that I went to PCB was uh, I got asked to go on a summer mission trip to uh, South Asia by one of the crew staff members there. And uh, so I said, I said, no, but the words that came out were, I'll go next summer. <laughs> I'm, I'm hearing it. I'm hearing a thing. Next, next time. Man. Next it's time. a theme. It's a theme. And so I had already told my dad that I would work construction for him again that summer after my freshman year. And so I used that as my excuse because I didn't really want to go. I've, I've never been, I had never been uh, one who was interested in uh, things outside of the, the U.S., uh, I never had an experience where I saw a missionary at church growing up, and then I thought to myself, oh, I want to be a missionary. Mm-hmm. That never happened to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so when I said next time, I didn't really think I was going to go the next summer. And it was convenient because uh, he actually left Nebraska. He transferred to a, do a crew ministry in a different place. So I was like, oh, this is great. I don't have to like I'm out. say, uh, yeah, I don't have to say next time again. And then somehow I ended up on Crew's website. Uh, for uh, summer summer mission trips that spring of my or sorry the fall of my sophomore year after I'd said next time, looking at missions trips no one was no one was saying oh you should look at that it was almost like it was like a God was just moving my hands and my brain and ended up uh, clicking on a a seven week summer mission trip to East Asia in the summer of 2012 which would have been after my sophomore year. And deciding that I was going to apply to go on that. And so applied on that, applied for that summer mission trip and uh, ended up going after my, my sophomore year. And within a, I mean, as, a, as we were landing, we, we were together as a team in Chicago. This was a team of like 35 people, mm-hmm. big. We were going to go over to East Asia, a big city there and do campus ministry. And as we were landing, we, we, spent, we spent together time together in Chicago, getting trained up, trained up a little bit. And then as we were landing in the city that we were going to be in, in Asia, I remember looking at the, the, the buildings and looking at the smog and seeing the, mm. the characters of their language on the building and thinking, this was such a mistake. 
<laughs> and wondering if I could get back on the plane like as it was going back to Chicago. Uh-huh. Uh, and, man, uh, if I knew, I, you know, it was it was a tough summer, I will say. Right. Uh, seven weeks of not liking the city, not liking the dirtiness, the smog, the different language. Uh, Grand Island's 50,000 people. This city was 26 million people, mm. including a million college students. And not to mention, I was in a uh, a community of people who were really poking me and really starting to like uncover just a lot of sin, helping me to uncover sin in my heart. And uh, again, this is another step in the discipleship process of these people are really teaching me what it looks like to have an intimate community where we're living together, you know, we're, we're all living in the same hotel right next to each other hmm. and asking ourselves tough questions. And the first, the first night of being there, we did what we called a uh, story of the soul, like sharing our entire story and like specifically sharing the things that we're most ashamed of. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, like there's follow-up questions at the end, like, well, what did you not share? Oh, type of, you know, like stuff like that. Yeah. And so like when, yeah. I, when I didn't share about like, the pornography issue like that came out after that and you know just other stuff other stuff as well and you know stuff still with the drinking and and so so, so i, I want to pause here a second one we're caught on time but mm-hmm. two like i know this next step there's a lot of stuff that's going that like there's a whole nother story mm-hmm. here uh when we started i kind of pointed onto the wall here where i talk about the uh you know the uh how the story builds. There's lots of arcs and, in my life. And we, we hit a point of of stress point, battle, resolution, mm-hmm. and now we're kind of into the ever after. Yeah. And I just to kind of tease the listener a little bit here, because I can't, the ever after is kind of the better story than the first part. Isn't that, uh, well, I think so. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm, I've not done this before, uh, but I think we absolutely need to have you back at some point, and, uh, and let's get the ever after. Um, and I just had chills just, just, <laughs> <laughs> just saying that. Um, well, Jake, thanks a ton for sharing. Um, I really, really love your story. I love that you're, uh, you've been willing to and open to come and share it with me, uh, both here and, and, uh, and what you're going through. Um, and I just, uh, I want to encourage you that you're doing good work, um, both internally in yourself. Uh, and in the community, wherever he seems to put you. Um, mm. And I'm excited to see what the rest of your story is. Um, and thanks a ton for coming. Appreciate yeah, it. thank you. It's an yeah. honor. Yeah. I, I really don't want to interrupt this. I want to keep going, but uh, recognizing kind of where we're at. Um, so uh, for those of you that got uh, joined in the middle, you missed it. This is the Who is God podcast. I am Thaddeus Funk, and uh, I have... Jake Grease has been my guest today, uh, and I'm with special thanks to Ken Beckwith uh, for uh, managing all of our recording and all the technical part of the show, so I can just be here and focus on you. So, thanks. Tune in next time. You've been listening to the Who Is God podcast. Join the discussion on Facebook or Instagram. This podcast has been brought to you by Tacklebox Studios. Tacklebox Studios is a 501c3 nonprofit corporation. This podcast has been made possible by generous support from individuals like you. If you found this meaningful, please let us know. Donations can be mailed to Tacklebox Studios, 285 South 68th Street Place, Suite 320, Lincoln, Nebraska, 68510.